All right, let us turn to the word of the Lord, John 1, 1 through 5, and 9 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor Titus is going to be speaking to us this morning about knowing God and knowing that he has revealed himself to us as human. In a moment, we're going to stand and read together Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is a psalm that we can cherish today because we know from Psalm 8 that God is mindful of us. As we go through difficulties and troubles, the psalmist asks, not God, where are you? Not God, are you mindful? But why? Because of the fact and the certainty that God is mindful of us. And we know that he's mindful of us Because he has become one of us. He knows what it means to be fully human from the inside out. And so let's stand and read Psalm 8 together in praise to God. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. You may be seated.
Good morning, Geneva. It's good to be with you again, uh, and this is it. This is our last chapel of the semester. Uh, you have one week to go, and then you're going to be released to the longest spring uh, Christmas break in Geneva history. The longest Christmas break in Geneva history. And I, I didn't check the records or anything, so I could, can't verify it, but maybe they had a long one during the, the Spanish flu as well during 1918. Um, but you're going to be leaving for Christmas Thanksgiving, New Year's, a few other holidays scattered in there, uh, Black Friday and Boxing Day and MLK Day. You're going to have a long break. It's almost here, so finish well. Uh, this semester in chapel, we've been reflecting on the character of God, the nature of God. We've been focusing on this because uh, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. You, you need to remember that throughout your life. Uh, what you think about God informs everything you do in life. Um, Well, today, in anticipation of Christmas, since this is the last time I'll get to speak to you before Christmas, we're going to think specifically about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, that he became human. Uh, Much like the Trinity, uh, the person of Jesus is actually pretty hard for us to wrap our minds around because uh, he is one person, but in this one person, there are two distinct and complete natures, fully God and fully human and yet one person. And so I'm gonna, we're going to reflect on that today, the two natures of our Savior. Uh, and I'm going to start by reading Romans chapter 1, first four verses. And I want you to uh, listen here for the two natures of Christ that are pointed out by Paul. Romans chapter 1, first four verses. Listen to God's word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is God's word, and may he open our eyes to see the amazing things the wonders of the fact that the divine and human were joined together in our Savior. One of the ways that we try to make things more convenient in life is trying to take two things and uh, combine them into one. Uh, So, for example, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, Casio popularized the, the calculator watch. So it tells you the time all throughout the day, but... You always have a calculator on hand in case you need to work out a math problem throughout the day. And people, people loved it, typing away on their calculator. Or if you've ever been on a ducky tour, that's a, a tour that a lot of cities in our country have now. Uh, you ride this amphibious vehicle that drives around the city like a bus, and you see all the sights of the city, and then it drives right into the river or right into the harbor like a boat. And then you boat around, uh, and, and you see the city from the water. It's a boat and a bus in one. When we speak about analogies or when we, when we use analogies, they break down pretty quickly, uh, particularly when we use analogies to try to describe God. Uh, but this, in some ways, is what we find in the person of Jesus. Uh, 2,000 years ago, while continuing to be fully God, infinite and unchangeable, Jesus became fully man finite, and changeable. And in that moment, he united 
God and human together in one person, not just for a time, not just for 33 years, but then forever. And like the Trinity, this is difficult for us to understand. He's not half God, half human, like uh, the the demigods that we uh, study about in Greek mythology. Uh, He's not the spirit of God inhabiting a human body, just sort of pretending to be human, wearing it sort of like a costume. It's not like that. But rather, while remaining fully and eternally God, he took to himself a human body and soul. Two complete natures subsumed in one single person. Of course, in our experience, when you combine two things and make them one, uh, like a calculator and a watch, those two things don't usually function as effectively or efficiently uh, as they did in two separate units. And so uh, if you've ever used a Casio calculator watch, it's convenient if you have you know, the appropriately slim fingers to press those buttons because it's almost impossible to press one button at a time. Or an amphibious vehicle, uh, they don't glide over the road as easily as a bus, and they don't uh, run efficiently, as efficiently in the water as a dedicated boat. And so in our lives, when we combine two things into one, you compromise both of those things. Well, unlike our hybrid inventions, Jesus loses nothing. He retains the fullness of his deity and at the same time takes on the fullness of humanity, and that's what is so hard for our brains to wrap around. This is what we celebrate at church each week. We celebrate his incarnation, and that's what many of us will celebrate over the Christmas season. Why is it so important for us to understand that Jesus was and continues to be fully God and fully man? Well, what we find here in the person of Jesus is that because he's fully God and fully man in one person, he And he alone is uniquely suited to be our savior. Uh, Back in World War II, there was a a need for a specially made bomb that was able to penetrate the thick concrete bunkers where the enemy hid uh, or where they made submarines or ammunition. And so the British called what uh, uh, created what they called a bunker buster bomb. And bunker buster was a combination of a battering ram and a bomb. And so they took one of their biggest bombs and they combined it with a particularly thick steel casing so that instead of exploding on impact and not really being able to uh, deliver the payload where it needs to be delivered, um, they instead, uh, this bomb would reach its target uh, at ramming speed and was able to bust through thick concrete walls and floors. And then once it was in the right place, it would explode. Bunker busters were made to penetrate the impenetrable. Well, in some ways, you can think of Jesus as God's bunker buster, uniquely suited to be our Savior because in one person, he combined human identity, which enabled him to penetrate deeply into the world and into our lives. And yet he had divine power, which enabled him to defeat Satan, sin, and death in order to bring us lost sinners to God to be adopted into his family. Jesus was made fully human and remained fully God because nothing else could save us. And so as we reflect on this week by week, as we worship God, and as we reflect on this uh, during this time of the year, rejoice that God became human, that humanity and divinity were united together 
in the one person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to cover two things today, really just two things. I want to give you a taste of the many ways in which you see the two natures of Jesus in the scriptures. And then I want to consider why this matters. Uh, Like the theology of the Trinity, sometimes we can think that it's just sort of this dry intellectual pursuit. But in fact, when we consider who God is, the nature of who God is, the nature of who Jesus is, it has incredible impact for our spiritual lives. So first, we're going to take a look at the many different ways in which we see the two natures of Christ displayed in Scripture. And uh, I'm going to give you 10 ways, actually, 10 ways in which we see both the human and the divine in the person of Jesus. So number one, Jesus was born, yet is eternal. He was born, yet eternal. Uh, Jesus was miraculously conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, as we just read a few minutes ago. He grew in the womb just like every other baby. He was born the same way we're all born. He had DNA that genetically connected him to the human race, to a family, to an ancestry. No doubt as he grew up, people would be able to recognize his features and, 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 uh, and, and people would be able to say, oh, that, that's, that's Mary's boy right there. And yet, although he was born, He always existed. Uh, In the midst of one of the theological tussles, the many theological tussles that Jesus had with the Pharisees, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. It's a profound statement. Because first, he's claiming to have existed long before Abraham was born. But secondly, and more importantly, he was using the name that God himself had claimed. Jesus is the great I am, the same name that God used with Moses at the burning bush. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was claiming to be the God, the same God who spoke to Moses there at the burning bush. He's the one who's always been. And the Pharisees knew what he was saying, and so they picked up stones to kill him. But he just sort of walked away. He was born, yet he was eternal, human and divine. Number two, He's the son of man, but yet also the son of God. Over 80 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the son of man. And Jesus himself most identifies with this title, the son of man. And I used to think, well, why does he uh, call himself, why doesn't he call himself the son of God instead of the son of man? Like he's, isn't he trying to prove that he's also God, not just man? But What he's communicating here is that just as important as it is to know that Jesus is God, it's also equally important to know that Jesus is human. He's not just pretending. He's not wearing this body like a costume, but he's actually the son of man. He's calling himself the the, the son of man to make it clear that he's actually one of us. We are sons and daughters of humanity. Uh, We are the seed of the woman spoken of in Genesis 3.15. He's one of us. But then at the same time, he's identified as the Son of God uh, compared to the, uh, the, the 80 times that he is referred to as the Son of Man. He's referred to 40 times as the Son of God. And at his baptism, there was that voice that came down from heaven that said, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Um, in Acts chapter 8, Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, it was the Ethiopian eunuch who said, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he was baptized. Jesus is 
the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity, but he's also the Son of Man, a descendant of David, human and divine. Number three, he changes, but yet he never changes. He changes, yet he never changes. Uh, Jesus had needs as a human. He needed his mother's milk. He eventually needed food to eat. He grew as a toddler. He learned to walk and talk. He went to school and he learned. He asked questions. He changed every day. In fact, we're told in Hebrews 5.8 that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And in Luke 2.52, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. It's, it's hard for us to imagine that the Son of God grew and learned. Jesus was in constant change just as we are. You and I are now. Our hair grows, his hair grows. You get older, he got older. You learn things you didn't know before, he learned things he didn't know before. You forget things that you knew, he forgets things that he knew. We're in constant change, and so similarly was Jesus, fully human. But then yet at the very same time, Jesus never changes. We're told in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Being the eternal son of God, he never changes. He remains constant, steady, faithful. He's the unchanging God. He changes constantly, and yet he never changes, human and divine. A fourth thing, he's a worshiper, and he's also worshiped. Uh, Jesus grew, grew up going to the synagogue with his family, and he went to worship every week. Um, he grew up singing and praying and listening to God's word preached. And so he gathered with the church and he worshiped God. But at the same time, he was the one who was worshiped uh, when he was born. The wise men of the east, they came and they found him. And it says that they worshiped him and they gave him gifts. In Matthew 14, after Jesus walked on water, it says that the disciples worshipped him. And after his resurrection, in Matthew 28, the women discovered an open tomb. They ran back to tell the disciples, and it says Jesus met them, and they fell at his feet, and they worshipped him. In Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the writer quotes from Deuteronomy 32, and it says that God the Father tells the angels to worship him, the Son, Jesus he is a worshiper with the people, but he's also worshiped by the people, human and divine. And number five, he's the Lord's Christ and he's Christ the Lord. He's the Lord's Christ and he's Christ the Lord. Uh, there's an interplay here in Luke chapter two between these two words, Lord and Christ. Um, and if you read Luke chapter two, which we uh, many of us do during the, the, the Christmas season, in Luke 2.26, Mary brought Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord. And there at the temple, there was an old man named Simeon. And the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would die before he would see the Lord's Christ. And he held Jesus in his arms. He is the Lord's Christ. Uh, oftentimes we refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ. And many people believe that that's just must have been his last name or something. But Christ is not the last name. It simply means the anointed one. This is the Lord's anointed one. Uh, the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. This is the Messiah. The Old Testament kings and priests and prophets were anointed and set apart for their office. And then the Old Testament is filled with these prophecies about the anointed one, the Messiah. In, in, in Greek, it would be the Christ who would come. He would be the Lord's anointed, which means that this is a man, a seed of the woman of the line of Abraham, a descendant of David, 
who would be prophet, priest, and king. And so Simeon saw the Lord's Christ, the anointed one. Well, just earlier in this chapter, we find the same words, but in a different order. And when the angels appeared to the shepherds out in the field, the angel proclaimed in, in, in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Not the Lord's Christ, but Christ the Lord. The Lord's Christ, this human servant of God, anointed by God, is also Christ the Lord, who is the Lord God himself. So at the very same time, he's the Lord's Christ, and he is Christ the Lord, human and divine. Number six, he was genuinely tempted, and yet he couldn't be tempted. He was genuinely tempted, and yet couldn't be tempted. Immediately after Jesus had been baptized by John, the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. Jesus had to be tested. Just as Adam and Eve were tested there in the Garden of Eden, uh, they were tested by Satan and they fell pretty quickly into sin. Now, Jesus now coming as the second Adam to be our representative, he had to be genuinely tempted in order to prove his per- perfection and qualify him as a savior. Jesus, you need to understand, was and he was tempted in far greater ways than you and I are tempted. You and I, we have limited, limited power. If we had a lot more power, we'd, we'd be tempted in a lot more ways. The more power you have, the more you're tempted to use it and abuse it. But Jesus, he had all power. And so he faced all of temptation, far greater than what we fa- face, and yet he persevered and remained faithful all the way to the end. He was genuinely tempted. And that's important for us to understand because he knows what you're going through. He knows the struggles that you face, the temptations that bombard you. And so in Hebrews 4.15, it says that Jesus is our high priest who is tempted in every way as we are. Every way as we are and far more. And yet was without sin. And so therefore, he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Jesus knows what you're going through because he was there. And he has compassion because he himself was tempted. But at the same time, Jesus is also the Lord, Yahweh, Elohim. And it says in James 1.13 that God cannot be tempted by evil. As God, Jesus could not be tempted. But yet as human, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Tempted, but not tempted. Human and divine. Number seven, Jesus couldn't even carry his own cross, and yet he had all power. Jesus was beaten so badly. The Romans beat those that they crucified so badly that some of them died before they were actually crucified, and Jesus was beaten so badly that he couldn't even carry his cross to the place where he'd be crucified, and he stumbled under his weight, and he couldn't continue. You imagine being a disciple at that time, and you watch your Savior crumble under the weight of a cross. And this is the same Savior that calmed the storms, that healed the sick, that raised the dead, that gave sight to the blind, and yet he can't even carry a cross. How confusing is this? Jesus wasn't pretending here. He wasn't putting on a show. But in fact, he was weak. So weak, in fact, that he had to, they had to get Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross the rest of the way. He was weak, just like you're weak and I'm weak. He understands that. 
He's human. And yet in his divine nature, he could do whatever he wanted. He could have taken that cross and thrown it into the sea if he wanted. He could have yanked out the nails that held him on the cross and he could have climbed down or flown. In his human nature, he was beaten down, collapsed under the weight of the cross. But yet in his divine nature, he had all power. Both are true because in this one man, he's human and divine. Number eight, he died and yet rose again. Jesus actually died. And we need to say that point uh, to recognize that he wasn't just pretending. He actually died. He gave up his spirit into the hands of God. He was killed. He was buried. And yet being divine, he was able to take up his life again. He laid down his life, demonstrating his true humanity. He took it up again, demonstrating his true divinity, which is what Paul points out there at the beginning of Romans chapter 1. He is human and divine. Number nine, he became king, but yet he was always king. He became king, but yes, yet he was always king. Uh, As it says in the first verse of the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the world together. We're taught that God the Father created all things through the Son who created all things through the power of the Holy Spirit who created all things. So as a result, this triune God, Jesus as well, included there, of course, reigns as the king over all of his creation, simply as the creator. He was the creator king. Well, as the creator king, uh, The Godhead placed mankind, specifically Adam, as the human king over his creation. He gave Adam dominion over all the world to rule over it and care for it. But Adam failed in his responsibility because he disobeyed God. He ate the forbidden fruit and therefore he was dethroned. He lost his position of authority. Well, in order to restore us, the human race, to the proper place of authority over creation, we needed a human king who would never fail. And with no one else being qualified, the second person of the Trinity, the creator king, became human. He became one of us. He died. And then as he was raised to life, God the Father seated him in the heavens above everything so that his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The creator king became the mediator king, the human king. He represents us as a human race. He's the king who became king, human and divine. And then finally, number 10, he is one with the church and yet he's one with the father. One with the church and yet one with the father. One of the beautiful, most comforting truths of the Bible is our union with Christ. Our only hope is that we're connected to Christ. Uh, There are many ways in which this is communicated throughout Scripture. John 15 describes Jesus as a vine, and we are the branches. And we only bear fruit and thrive if we're connected to him. Uh, Paul talks about Christians as being in Christ and with Christ and through Christ. We died with Christ. We rose with Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We've been seated with Christ as rulers over the world. Even now we rule over the heavens and the earth. We have Christ in us. Well, Jesus, in his humanity, he becomes one of us. And he becomes our head. 
He becomes the cornerstone of the church. We're united with Christ, and Christ is united with us. This means that he took on our identity so much that he was declared to be a sinner. And because we are one with him, we were declared to be righteous. He's one with us. We have his righteousness. He takes our sin. He dies. We live. He is one with us, the church, and that's our hope. But at the very same time, Jesus is also one with the Father. In another battle with the Pharisees, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And this was a clear claim to deity. And the Pharisees knew it again, and they erupted with anger. Shortly after that, he said, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's speaking of his divine nature. He is one with the Father. As he's always been in eternity past and forever will be in eternity future, he's the second person of the Trinity. This is profound because he's one with the Father and yet he's one with the church, which is the basis of our reconciliation with God. We are invited into this this, this holy community of the Godhead. Human and divine. This is what we celebrate in the incarnation. One person with two distinct natures. But you have to ask, why is this so important for us? Why, why is it essential that Jesus be both God and man? Uh, it's this doctrine... As among others, but it's this doctrine that sets us apart from the so-called Christian cults, like Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they believe that Jesus wasn't God, but he's just an angel. And the Mormons believe that Jesus was a created being who was just human like us, and then he became a god, and he's one of billions of gods in the world. Well, why is it important that we set our, our, ourselves apart from these heresies, these cults? It's because in order for us to be saved... Jesus had to be God, Jesus had to be human, and Jesus had to be one. And if not, then we're lost. This world was cursed with death and decay and disease. Mankind was enslaved, enslaved by Satan and sin, held captive. Satan was there entrenched. He was, he was holding the world by the chokehold. And Satan felt safe deep within his bunker. And since he held the, the, the human race captive, he felt almost invincible, as if God couldn't touch him. But meanwhile, God, in his divine plan, was shaping a weapon, a bunker buster, the only weapon that could deeply penetrate the world where Satan felt safe. And yet this weapon also had the power, the explosive power to kill the enemy. Think about his humanity. Because he is human, he deeply penetrates into this world. He, de- he penetrates into our experience. He knows your struggles because he's been there. He identifies with us. He became one of us. He knows the, the experience of the curse, the temptations that surround us, the trials that plague us, the death that awaits us. And so with this ramming speed, he, he, he penetrates deeply into the world and into humanity and deeply into that bunker where Satan felt secure, where death reigned and sin enslaved. 
And then with divine power, he delivered his payload. Judas betrayed him. The Jewish Sanhedrin condemned him. Pilate crucified him. And as he was crucified, he absorbed the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. And he destroyed our greatest enemies. He exploded with such power that he crippled and mortally wounded our enemy. He set us free from the grip of Satan and the power of sin. He set us free from the wrath of God. And as evidence of this great victory, he rose on the third day from the dead. Jesus is human and divine in one person. He is the bunker buster. And he was our only hope. The uniquely shaped weapon to set us free. Jesus has won this war for us by becoming human. He set us free. He's brought us to God. He's uniquely suited to be our Savior because He's human and divine in one. He is our only hope. Reject Him and you're lost. Rejoice in Him. Hope in Him and you are saved. Rejoice that our Savior joined humanity and divinity together into one person forever. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for sending your son to be one of us and to be uniquely suited to be our glorious Savior. We thank you, Jesus, for being willing to penetrate this cursed world by becoming one of us and willingly going to the cross in order to set us free and to save us from our great enemies. Without you, we lose. But with you, with you, we are more than conquerors. And all our hope is in you. We rejoice in your grace, Lord Jesus, and we look forward to your glorious return. Come and finish this great work. We ask in your name. Amen.